Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, meet me in 1 Peter chapter 2. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 10 is where we'll be in God's word together this morning. Uh, as Marnie said, I'm, I'm Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. And I'm really thankful uh, to be able to worship the Lord with you this morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, last week we started a new sermon series uh, in the book of First Peter entitled Living Hope. Well, we are doing a, a brief survey uh, of, the book, of the book over the next uh, few weeks uh, to consider together how uh, we look to the Lord as our hope in trials and troubled times. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, uh, but there are, are people that are going through what some have called deconstruction of their faith. This isn't new, uh, but in the last few years, in the midst of the pandemic and cultural turmoil and personal struggle, there has been a pronounced sense of disappointment and discouragement about God and his church. Sociologist uh, Josh Packard calls this the rise of the duns. Uh, we've talked here at this church about the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, where people are increasingly identifying as religiously unaffiliated or spiritual. But Packard talks about the rise of the duns, D-O-N-E-S, uh, where people are not shifting their religious affiliation per se. They, they would still check the, the Christian box, but they're just done with it all. Uh, they're, they're not really questioning the Bible or if Jesus is Lord. Uh, it's just lost its luster. Uh, they, they feel so disheartened, so untethered that they really just don't have the motivation or the will for their faith. They're, they're tired. People are seeing trouble and suffering on every side, and, and they're tired. Deconstruction almost feels like too formal a word. It's, it's not sophisticated. It's not conscientious. It's not well thought out. People are just saying, I, I just I don't have the wherewithal to make sense of all this anymore. I'm tired. I'm done. Uh, I like First Peter because its backdrop is trouble. It, it focuses on the people that know what it's like to have to wrestle for their faith in hard times. It, it focuses on people that know what it's like to be discouraged and disappointed. Chapter 1, verse 6, Peter calls it being grieved by various trials. And in response, the Apostle Peter keeps calling these elect exiles back to what is true of them in Christ, regardless of the condition of their lives. And in chapter 2, Peter focuses on who they are in Christ. He's calling the untethered back to their, their tether. And so for those of us who struggle to know who we are, especially in hard times, Peter calls out to us, in these verses. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. 
Hear now the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and the hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for the great privilege to know you and to serve you. Lord, thank you that you invite us into our neediness in you, that you would nourish us by your word. We ask that you would do that now in this moment, that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Who are you? These words begin this iconic scene in the movie Anger Management. Uh, Dr. Buddy Rydell, played by Jack Nicholson, is engaging Dave Busnick, played by Adam Sandler, in a group session for anger management. Buddy wants Dave to introduce himself, and so he asks him, who are you? Dave responds, I'm an executive assistant at a major pet products company, and Buddy interrupts him. Dave, I, I don't want you to tell us what you do. I want you to tell us who you are. You start to see a confused look on Dave's face, yet he tries again. I, I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, I, I like to play tennis on occasion. And Buddy interrupts again. Uh, not your hobbies, Dave. It's, it's simple. Just tell us who you are. Dave becomes noticeably flustered as he struggles to answer the question. He tries again. Uh, I'm a nice, easygoing man. I might be a little bit indecisive at times. And once again, Buddy interrupts. Dave, you're describing your personality. I, I want you to tell us who you are. And Dave snaps back in anger. I don't know what you want me to say. And then the scene ends with Buddy jotting down notes with some, some, some judgment in his eyes. And 
Uh, we never actually get an answer of what Buddy was looking for. Um, and of course, you find out later in the movie that Buddy wasn't really looking for an answer. Uh, this was just one of a series of tests he was doing to push on Dave's anger. And even though the scene is essentially just a mind game, uh, it stuck with me. It sticks with me because uh, I can resonate with, with the struggle uh, to really know, who am I? A am I answering the question correctly? And definitely in our cultural moment, there are many questions about how to answer the question, who are you? Sometimes it's broad existential questioning. Sometimes it's more specific and circumstantial. For example, there are times when I get to engage someone who is in a crisis. They're overwhelmed by something going on in their lives, and I ask them two questions. What do you believe about God in this moment? And I ask them, what do you believe about yourself in this moment? These two questions are important because how you answer them impacts how you respond to the crisis. Who is God and who are you? In 1 Peter 2, we see the Apostle Peter answering uh, these questions for his audience. And it's clear in this passage that Peter keeps tethering who they are to who Christ is. Because if you are a follower of Christ, he determines who you are and how you should live above anything else. And Peter is explaining to this dispersion of Christians, and he says to us this morning three things about who you are. You are chosen, you are connected, and you are called. You are chosen, you are connected, you are called. Firstly, you are chosen. Again, he starts with Jesus Christ. We, we must understand uh, that that's how he always starts. That's how the scriptures start. That who we are flows downstream from who Christ is. Uh, Peter keeps threading that needle throughout this passage. In verse 4, he says that Christ is the living stone in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter pulls this from Isaiah 28, 16, and quotes it in verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Christ is the splendid one. He is exalted above all things. His wonder fills everything. That's our God, and that shapes us. When we are in Christ, we get to experience the beauty and wonder of being chosen. As Kurt Thompson once said, everyone is born looking for someone looking for them. And, and we're, we're located when we're in Christ. Do, do you know what it feels like to feel chosen, to, to have someone see you, especially when you're exposed and ashamed, yet you're still chosen. Peter says in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's what it means to be chosen. That's the implication of being in Jesus Christ. And I love Christ because he, he does not choose us based on our resume. He does not choose us based on our performance. He doesn't choose us because we're good. Quite the contrary. 
The Lord saw a people steeped in rebellion and shame, and while we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his love and that he died for us. He chose us. When we can't seem to, to live for him like we should, he, he chose us. When we're convinced that our life isn't worth anything, he, he chose us. Many of you know Jean Valjean. One of the most powerful moments in the novel-turned-movie and musical, Les Miserables, or Les Mis, as it's affectionately known, we see Jean Valjean early on, dusty and dirty, recently released from prison, and he stops by Bishop Muriel's home for somewhere to eat and to sleep. He ends up robbing the bishop, stealing his silverware and running off. Jean is captured and brought back to the bishop. The police are ready to put Jean back in prison. But the bishop lies for him and says the silver was a gift and even loads him up with even more silver that he forgot. The police let him go, and Jean Valjean is surprised and confused. The bishop looks deeply into his eyes as if he's peering into his very soul and says, Jean Valjean... My brother, you no longer belong to what is evil, but to what is good. I have bought your soul to save it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And from there, Jean Valjean's life was never the same again. He was chosen. He was in his lowest, most exposed, most shameful moment, and he was chosen. The Apostle Peter says, all who believe in this chosen and precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ, will never be put to shame. He sees us at our, our lowest. He sees us most exposed. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. He sees our pride. He sees our hatred. He sees our sin. And he says, I've chosen you. I give you honor instead of shame. You're chosen. Secondly, you are connected. Peter expresses in a specific way how God operates in the world. When God saves, he saves a people. When he redeems, he redeems a people. When he calls, he calls a people, not just persons. God draws people to each other as much as he draws people to himself. We see this in the passage. Peter is kind of mixing metaphors here. Again, he begins with Jesus. Peter calls him the living stone in verse 4 and the cornerstone in verse 6 and 7. Stone masons would rummage through stones looking for a stone that was big enough and sturdy enough to build a structure upon. The cornerstone is the foundational stone. Jesus is the foundational stone. Amen, somebody. Amen. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But then Peter, from there, extends the metaphor from Christ to God's people. In verse 5, it says, We are living stones built up as a spiritual house. The spiritual house meaning the temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of his spirit. 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Peter is stacking the metaphors here. He says, we are the stones, the house, the priests, and the sacrifice unto God. That's who we are. But do you notice the connective nature of the metaphor? That that he doesn't just leave us as stones separated out. But he builds us together. This is so important to note because when you're going through hard times, it is far better to do it in community. As Eugene Peterson says, when you are in Christ, there is a grammatical change that happens in our lives. It's no longer I, it's we. It's no longer me, it's us. Isolation is the exact opposite of what God desires for his people. We are connected. I can hear someone's thoughts. I can can hear someone say, the church is messy. The the church is a mess. I, I, I don't know if I want to be connected to this. And you're right, no argument here. Uh, we, we a mess, I'm going to just tell you. If you're wondering, let me set it straight, we a mess. My concern though, is when we approach going to church like we approach going to the mall. Uh, you, you, you ever gone into a store at the mall and you just love being there because of its presentation? I mean, that's why I like going into Apple. I mean, it just looks stunning when you walk into Apple. Just, just the sleekness of it. It looks nice. Or I walk into Old Navy and the clerks are off to the side looking frustrated and they're folding the clothes and the pants and the shirts because people keep unfolding the shirts and the pants. And they got to get it back right. Why? Because the presentation. People will want to stay and buy. They, they will want to stay and consume. If it looks good, and then we we come to church. And and we're looking for people that look good. We're we're looking for people that know how to give a good presentation. And as church people, we often succumb to that pressure to, to look like we have it all together. And that approach can work so long as you don't take one single step closer to the church. Because the moment you actually take the step of knowing and being known, you're going to find some mess. It's going to come out of you. (laughs) I promise you. I I promise you. I, I know it's true because every single book of the Bible points to it. Peter is pointing to it in this passage. Did you see it in verse 1? Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Peter's calling out some serious stuff in these churches. These aren't cute sins. And nowhere in the book do you get any hint that Peter is given the option for them to abandon each other, to separate from each other, to isolate from each other. Nowhere. But rather, he highlights the connected nature of their spirituality. You are a spiritual house, you are a holy priesthood. Again, verse 9, a holy nation, a chosen race. Do you hear the connection there? God draws a people to each other as much as he draws a people to himself. You can't get rid of me, and I can't get rid of you. And that's actually good news. 
because hard times can make you feel lonely, can't they? I mean, suffering can, can make you feel isolated. And Peter makes the point that it's there. In, in the trouble, in the pain, that you need to know you are connected. So live into that reality. But, but here's the, the real messiness. God has also always desire to draw people from diverse backgrounds. He, he wants a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural church. From Genesis to Revelation, he wants a unified people across all the lines that would try to push us to separate. He, he told Abraham, bless the nations. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. And when we get to Revelation, it continues into eternity when it's all said and done. Let me just read Revelation 5, 9 through 10 and see if it sounds familiar. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Does that sound familiar at all? It's the same sentiment as Peter in this passage. A holy priesthood, a, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Peter doesn't say it, but we know he had it in view, a people from every tribe, every tongue, and nation. And he says to God's people, you are connected. Why does Christ Central want to be a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural church? First off, when we search the scriptures, that's what we see as the heart of God for his people. And also because we want to see eternity's vision here in this local expression of God's church. But that's messy. That's harder than you think. And Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King's prophetic words still ring true. But the 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. We, we are prone to separation and tribalism because it feels easier and safer and more comfortable. But we do not serve a tribal deity. We serve the God who created every nation for himself. And these Gentiles, these non-Jews needed to hear that. As they are being persecuted and rejected by their own kinfolk, Peter is reminding them that they are part of a bigger story. And they're part of a bigger family. And the head of this family, the cornerstone, will not be stopped. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. So as Dr. King said, we, we listen to the beat of a more distant drum, moving to its echoing sounds. We march to the soul-saving music of eternity. We march together because we're connected. Thirdly, you are called. God chose you, he connected you, and he calls you. You are not a spiritual uh, cul-de-sac. You are a conduit. What God has given you, he desires to use you to give it to the world. Yes, he sees your suffering. He sees your shortcomings. And he still wants you for his mission of spreading his goodness in the world. 
Verse 9 and 10 use contrasting realities to highlight this call. You were in darkness, now you're in his marvelous light. You were not his people, now you are his people. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You have received all of this, not just for your sake, but for the sake of the world. The world needs this marvelous light. The world needs this care. The world needs this mercy. And he called you for this. He wants you to proclaim these excellencies. He wants you to offer the spiritual sacrifices. Whether you go to the nations or to your job or to your family, you are called. God can use even the broken, sinful places of your story for his glory. Because you're chosen, you're connected, and you're called. So how do we respond if that's true? Peter lays out two potential responses. Either you will be satisfied in Christ or you will stumble from Christ. Again, Peter mixes metaphors, but he says, when you are faced with the cornerstone, you will either reject him and stumble, verse verse, uh, 7 and 8, or you will be like a newborn nursing infant and long for him and be satisfied, verse 2 and 3. Those are your options, and we don't get a third. And and, and for centuries, people have been trying to get around Jesus, and they just keep stumbling. They just can't seem to get rid of him. Pharisees, Roman officials, even death itself. But nobody can overturn this cornerstone. So we can either persist in our rebellion and the frustration of our self-directed lives, or we can come in our helplessness, in our feebleness, and taste that the Lord is good. Verse 3. And in his goodness, he saves us and grows us up in that salvation. He, he, he's working in us and forming us and filling us because he put his name on us. And if, even if we might be done with the Lord, the Lord is not done with us. Somebody missed it, I need to say it again. Even if we might be done with the Lord, he is not done with us. Because he put his name on us. We're his treasured possession. A pastor in Chicago tells a story about preparing to update his church as he became the pastor of this old historic church. He tells the story of a piano, this, this eight-foot grand piano that after many years of unuse, they decided as a church that they needed to get it fixed. It was old and dusty and dirty and out of tune, but they figured they'd get it restored. And so the pastor, he called around various piano companies to see what they could do about it. Maybe they could fix it up for a good price. He calls in the first company and they they take a look at it and they tell him that instead of fixing it, they would buy the piano and give him one of their brand new pianos. He thought that was weird, but he liked the offer. Um, he, he calls another piano to come and, and take a look. They, they do the same thing. They, they, they send someone to look at it, and they, they offer him a new piano with money on top. Uh, this happens to the pastor multiple times, and eventually he realizes something's up here. 
Um, I'm missing something. So he calls somebody from the company that made the piano to come and take a look. So a lady comes, she looks it over, and she tells him how much it would cost to repair the piano. The repairs are about twice the cost the offers that these other companies were offering. Tens of thousands of dollars to repair this piano. He told this woman that came to check out the piano he was good. Uh, He's not going to spend all this money to fix an old piano when he has multiple offers to get a new one with money on top. There's no way. And she asked if she could see the offers and he showed her and and she was horrified. She said, oh, no, 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 you, you can't do that. And the pastor said, oh, yes, 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 I can. I'm not, I'm not paying thousands of dollars to fix this when I can get a profit from selling it. And she responded, okay, before you do that, let me just show you one thing. He said, okay. She pointed at the piano and said, do you, do you see that name that's embossed on the lid there? He said, yeah. She said, read that name out loud. He said, Steinway and Son. She said, stop right there. Do you know that because of that name on this piano, even in its current condition, it's worth more than all of those pianos being offered to you combined? She said, you don't know the treasure that you have. She, she began explaining to him the craftsmanship and, and care that goes into pianos that, that are made by Steinway. Uh, because of the attention that they give to these pianos, there's only four or five that are made a year. Uh, and, and these other companies, they, they knew that and they tried to take advantage of it. She helped this pastor to see that even though the piano was broken and dusty and worn down and out of tune and seemingly worthless, but because of the name that was on the inside of it, it was still worth far more than any other piano. Brothers and sisters, Jesus sees us in our various trials and suffering. Some of us are tired and worn out. Some of us are broken and beaten down. Yet God sees beyond all of that. He created you. He formed you. He shaped you and marked you by putting his name on the inside of you. And regardless of the condition of your life, you are still his treasured possession. And even if you don't feel like or look like what you ought to be, you're treasured and you're tethered. You're kept because God has put his name on you. I can hear the songwriter say his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Christ is sure for us. And he owns us, put his name on us. So who are you? Who are you? Above your job title, above your personality, above your origin story, above your circumstances, who are you? You are chosen. You are a connected, called child of God. And God is not done with you. May the power of who he is keep us tethered to the beauty of who we are, even when we're going through hard times. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So God, we confess that we struggle to look to you in our suffering, in our wonderings, in the grief of various trials.
But Lord, thank you that you draw near to the brokenhearted and you call us back to who we are in you. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that would worship you in that reality. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.